Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, a Shadi Nabhan podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Folks, today you are in for a treat. I have three multiple myeloma gurus that I'm going to try to get them to fight, but I'm not going to be the person who is going to get them to fight. I have a guest host. I have a guest host, Dr. Vincent Rajkumar, who did appear on Healthcare Unfiltered previously when I had him as my guest to discuss the complexity of conflict of interest. And he is going to take over the microphone. I'm going to step back and Vincent is going to be your host for today. He will take over Healthcare Unfiltered and he will discuss controversies in multiple myeloma between two phenomenal researchers, clinicians, colleagues, and really patient-oriented physicians. Doctors Sagar Lonial from Emory University and Rafael Fonseca from the Mayo Clinic. You have heard Rafael previously. He has been a guest on my podcast, but it is the first appearance the first appearance for Dr. Sagar Lonial, uh, the Chief Medical Officer of Winship Cancer Institute, and for their appearance on the Healthcare Unfiltered, I am eternally grateful. So today, I am stepping back as the host. Dr. Raj Kumar will be your host. He is going to debate multiple topics on multiple myeloma on Healthcare Unfiltered. We are going to talk about imaging. We are going to talk about smoldering myeloma. We're going to talk about endpoints. We're going to talk about maintenance. We're going to talk about PET scans, about minimal disease. Yes, all of that and some more on the Healthcare Unfiltered. And before I air the episode that I taped with these three phenomenal physicians, I'd like to plug the show by asking you to find Healthcare Unfiltered on all podcast outlets. You can find the Healthcare Unfiltered on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on TuneIn. Every place that you get a podcast, you can find Healthcare Unfiltered. Subscribe to the show, rate the show, give the show the number of stars the show deserves. Write a brief review if you have some time, and please refer a friend or a colleague. I'm sure that you will see many topics that your friends and colleagues would be interested in. So, without further ado, Healthcare Unfiltered, hosted by Vincent Rajkumar from the Mayo Clinic, with debates and controversies in multiple myeloma, discussed by doctors Rafael Fonseca and Cigar Lonial. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in to Healthcare Unfiltered. We're actually taping this episode on Sunday morning, the last day of January, 2021. I have my cup of Nescafe this morning. There's a snowstorm outside. By the time this airs, hopefully the snow will clear out. And I'm really super excited because I have three phenomenal colleagues and and gurus and, and thought leaders in the field of myeloma. And we thought we'd really spend some time with each other talking about multiple myeloma, there's a lot of, um, maybe there are some controversies in how patients with multiple myeloma should be treated in the real world, a standard of care, outside of clinical trials. 
But uh, I'm going to have fun with this episode because I actually going to take a step back and have a guest host who's going to moderate the discussion amongst two other colleagues. Well, so what I have with me today is Dr. Sagar Loniel from Emory University, Dr. Rafael Fonseca from the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Raj Kumar, Vincent Raj Kumar from the Mayo Clinic as well. Although Rafael and Vincent, they live apart, one in Arizona where the sun is, uh, you know, we're very jealous. And the other one is in Minnesota where he's probably facing the same snowstorm I have. Before I give you the microphone, Vincent, to take over, uh, maybe just uh, to introduce um, the panelists to our colleagues um, and our listeners. So first, Raphael, uh, a little bit about you. I think you're a recurring guest and um, I keep bringing you back because a lot of people love listening to you. So I don't know what it is. So basically there's a secondary gain for me because I get more listeners when you're on the, sh when you're in the show. Well, as long as you keep paying me, Chatty, I'll be here. So thank you for your for your invitation again. Again, as you mentioned, Rafael Fonseca and like my colleagues specializing in myeloma I'm at the Mayo Clinic in, in Arizona. I'm also interim executive director for the Mayo Clinic Cancer Center. And the nice thing is we have you on the mountain time or like on the west side, and then Dr. Loniel on the east coast. Dr. Loniel, uh, Sagar, uh, a little bit about you. Yeah, I'm uh, Sagar Loniel. I'm from the Winship Cancer Institute uh, at uh, Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Came here 24 years ago to be a fellow um, and have stayed. Uh, am the department chair for hematology and medical oncology and the chief medical officer for the Cancer Center. Came 24 years ago and never left. Yeah. And then we have in the Midwest. So we cover all time zones. That's the nice thing about Healthcare Unfiltered. Vincent, a little bit about you. Chaddy, thanks so much for having me, and it's great pleasure to uh, talk to Raphael and Sagar about controversies in myeloma. Um, my um, specialty is also myeloma, as you know, and I've been at Mayo, uh, came to Mayo as a fellow and stayed on on staff, uh, and now been there for almost uh, 25 years or more. I feel like uh, part of what distinguishes the panel that you have today is uh, from you know, other panelists is that we are first doctors. I mean, we really like taking care of patients and we encounter these problems day to day as physicians. And the fact that we do research, whether it be lab or science, uh, trials or epidemiology, it's just all geared toward that same purpose. You know, how can we improve care for our patients? So these two guests that we have today are like, um, you know, epitomize this. They, they are very, very good physicians, kind, caring physicians. And at the same time, they've led many of the seminal studies that we use today to manage patients with myeloma. So I'm looking forward to this discussion. Thank you, Vincent. And you all have what I call the fellowship syndrome. You just started a fellowship somewhere and you just never left, whether it's Emory or Mayo. I mean, I don't know. It's, uh, yeah. We are still learning. <laughs> yeah. We're still learning. We're still <laughs> <Yeah>. fellows. <laughs> Well, I'm gonna look. I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I'll. My listeners know I'm not an expert in myeloma. I know enough to be dangerous in a conversation. I crafted certain areas that we could probably talk about, whether it's smoldering myeloma, whether it's MGUS, whether it's maintenance therapy, MRD, imaging, uh, endpoints, uh, novel therapy, selenexor, and the alike. So um, I'll let you, Vincent, make a decision how you want to start and have a conversation. And the more you get them to fight, Vincent, the yeah. more we get that podcast going. Okay, I'm just kidding. Um, Vincent, go ahead. It's all yours. Okay, very well. I mean, as Chaddy was saying, like, you know, if 
if we look at myeloma, there's a, a lot of controversies. And uh, I'll start with the big one and I'll ask Sagar to first start. Sagar, why should people really be considering treatment for smoldering myeloma? Are we sure that treatment uh, helps the patient in any way? So I think when we when we talk about smoldering, everybody has a different idea of what that really means. And so, you know, I think when Bob Kyle first described the smoldering subset of patients, it was really um, a grab bag of patients that didn't fit the criteria for MGUS, but didn't fit the criteria for symptomatic myeloma. And so I think in the beginning, that was a nice place to start. But what we've learned in the last decade or so is that there are differing natural histories for patients that fit in that grab bag. And so what I think we've spent a lot of the last few years trying to understand is which people really are at risk for developing myeloma-like symptoms despite close observation and monitoring? And is there anything we can do to intervene in those? Now, when we talk about that, sometimes people misinterpret that as, well, those patients already have myeloma. You're just missing it. And actually, that's not the point of who we talked about treating in the ECOG trial. I think the point is, there are patients who already have myeloma. There's no question about that. And we just happen to catch them at an in situ stage, if you will, trying to compare it to a solid tumor. But there are other patients that are at risk of conversion because I think of immune regulatory mechanisms that are in the process of failing and you can counterbalance those failing immune regulatory pieces by activating immune function. And that was the principle behind the lenalidomide versus observation trial that the three of us actually ran through ECOG. And I think what we demonstrated nicely was you can reduce the risk of progression by almost 70% in all patients. And if you pick the highest risk group, the, many, the Mayo 2220 criteria, 91% risk reduction. Why would you not take that 91% risk reduction with two years of therapy? I, I, that, that, that's the part I think that really is, is the key for my board. So the, the reason people argue that that's not enough is 90% reduction in risk of progression, but you did you actually reduce their overall survival? Does it matter whether it's survival or progression? So I'll take the argument um, that I think in the modern era of myeloma therapy, whether it's smoldering or newly diagnosed myeloma, overall survival is the wrong endpoint. And I realize in oncology, that's, uh, that's the third rail. Uh, but I think with a median survival of 10 years for all newly diagnosed myeloma patients and a median PFS, or sorry, yeah, a median PFS of almost 80 months for newly diagnosed standard risk myeloma, I think survival is, we have to wait 10, 15 years to really see differences in survival. And survival in my mind is a consequence of access. If you don't have access to new drugs or trials, your survival will be limited. That has nothing to do with the quality of the initial therapy you got. So let me bring in Raphael. I mean, Raphael, I think two issues that uh, Sagar mentioned was one is how to distinguish patients who progress from not, and he mentioned risk and, and you, study cytogenetics of myeloma and, and you know in other cancers they don't look at like you know what was the m spike size to decide who's going to progress the the pathologist tells you these i see these genetic changes this is malignant this is benign and then the second issue he's bringing forward is that overall survival is becoming unrealistic if it's if it's 10 plus years median for newly diagnosed god knows how much it is for smoldering <laughs> 
uh, it'll, it'll take, you know, one whole generation. So what do you think uh, you would retort to those two points? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, first of all, I think Sagar did what you need to do for, for, a, for a good discussion, and that is defining a priori. What is it that you're going to use as a term? And I think that the point of defining what smoldering is is critical. And if you, if you define that exclusively by clinical criteria, we know we have made a lot of progress, but we still have more to learn and to understand. And to your first question, part of that definition potentially should include um, other markers such as could be genetic abnormalities. Now we don't have the precision right now. So everything we have with genetics at best is sort of a hue or a tendency, but it's uh, far from being completely determinant on what's going to happen with risk of progression. So yes, we need to look at that carefully as, as we do bone marrows, we do the genetic analysis and you know, being in academic centers, we do very deep testing. But the reality is not at the point right now that we can use that to essentially make a goal, no goal decision. But that really applies to almost every single bit of information we bring to the, to the bedside. Now, I think the one factor that, that we have not brought forward as much as, uh, you know, this idea of a dynamic process of observation versus, uh, you know, how, how we have to design trials now, and it's just by the nature of how they have to be decided, that you do a determination of what are the risk factors of who's eligible, and then then you decide it's a go, no go. So one, one of my concerns with making uh, sweeping recommendations um, is that people can overinterpret this. So sometimes people will decide, well, you know, someone fits criteria or is close to fitting criteria and they might elect to start therapy. And I would suggest there are many circumstances where some additional follow-up can, can give you a better indication of what the evolution of the disease uh, will be. So that applies. You asked me the first question, Vincent, was, you know, genetics and other biologic factors. Probably some of the closest we have right now are the emerging uh, data on, on makeup normalities. We certainly know if you were to have P53 or a mutation of that, that would be uh, potentially problematic, but still, you know, much, much to be learned. But I think the dynamics of the follow-up are critically important. So that's, that's number one. Sagar brought in a hypothesis, and, and it's a hypothesis and a relative redu reduction in risk. Uh, but the, the hypothesis being that you're going to change this, you know, immune microenvironment, which is something we're all concerned about. And, and for which there is, there's, you know, very interesting and intriguing indirect data, but we still don't know that for sure as well too. So I still have to admit on the, the treatment of smoldering myeloma, a little bit more conservative perhaps. Uh, but as Chatty was saying when we started, first of all, hats off to everyone who does clinical trials because these are different, uh, you know, scenarios from where we normally have uh, tried this. And in particular to your second question, overall survival becomes essentially an impossible question, a question by which time we could address the treatments being used are likely irrelevant. So, you know, we need to start looking at novel uh, ways of assessing the worth and the benefit of this treatment. It could be survival at, you know, a, a predetermined number of years with a very large number of patients. You know, it could be indirect markers such as the ability to have sustained MRD negativity, et cetera. Uh, the, the, the purists will argue, and rightfully so, that until you have the overall survival, you don't know for sure, but that may be 15 years from now. So what do we do in the meantime with the patient in front of us? Right. So what would you do? So suppose if you have a, a, a patient with 30% plasma cells, and I tell you nothing else about the patient, and I just give the cells to you. Can you really tell Raphael whether this is uh, myeloma or, or benign or pre-malignant? 
I really can't until you're able to uh, address or until I'm able to probe into the remaining questions, because with 30%, you know, the answer for me would be categorically, no, you cannot tell. We see active myeloma with 20% plasma cells, and we see smoldering with 45. I think an important concept to bring forward here is this notion that we're changing how we think about smoldering. When you and I were in training in Sagar, you know, it's almost a badge of honor to be conservative in the treatment of smoldering. I used to say it was like, you know, pirate ships that had to get very close to each other so that their cannons were effective. So you, this movies, you go hold, 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 hold. And then once they fire, it's a mess. Well, we used to have, a, you know, a big pride in that. I remember we almost talked with certain extra little hue of joy to patients. Well, sometimes they never progressed. But the work that you have done and with Bob Kyle shows that there's a significant risk of progression. And I remember in 1992 having a meeting at the National Institutes of Health. Actually, Dr. Fisher was there. It was about Waldenstrom's, but it sort of applies to this. He says, you myeloma guys are very, very happy not to treat too early, but you need to ask yourselves if you're treating too late. And I think the studies like 3A06 are starting to, to probe that question and the Kyridex study as well too, whether we sometimes treat too late because there's nothing more devastating than then walking into a situation where you have irreversible damage of some sort. Correct, correct. And, and Sagar, you are, I mean, essentially getting uh, fire from both sides. I mean, one group of people say you should not treat, just wait till overall survival. And another group of people say, why just give lenalidomide or Lendex? You should be treating them like myeloma. You are getting friendly controversies from both sides. What do you answer? Like, you know, why should we do your approach right now? Well, you know, I mean, I think everybody feels that uh, genetics is the holy grail that will differentiate those actual myeloma from the true smolders, from the true MGUS. But the reality is that in every analysis we do, the genetic spectrum of each of those precursor disorders is identical to myeloma. So um, while, while Raphael may posit that immune regulation is a hypothesis, there's a huge amount of data saying that it actually is immune regulation that is the differentiator between smoldering that progresses and smoldering that doesn't progress. And my colleague who trained with both of you, Madhav Dadapkar, has very elegant human data from SWOG studies suggesting that anti-tumor T cells actually predict whether or not somebody will progress uh, from smoldering to symptomatic myeloma. Now, what we haven't tested is whether those anti-myeloma T cells can be induced with preventive therapy like lenalidomide, which was our hypothesis in the trial. And that actually, those studies are actually going on right now where we're using samples from E3A06 to see whether or not we could reverse that. People losing those anti-tumor T cells are getting them back as a consequence of immune modulatory therapy. But, but I think your, your other question to me really is about if you're gonna if you're gonna treat, why not go full bore? You know, I think that that's an interesting hypothesis that is currently being tested in uh, deter SMM trial uh, that the ECOG is running. But more importantly, if you believe that bolstering immune regulation is really the difference between progression and non-progression, then if you give full anti-myeloma therapy, you may actually be doing more harm than good because basically you're wiping out all of that anti-myeloma T cell immunity with KRD times four, two transplants, maintenance, DARA, all those other things that are built into myeloma therapy. And we take that risk 
when patients have myeloma because they already have evidence of organ damage or impending organ damage. That's a different situation than it is in a smoldering setting where interception or prevention is the goal. And maybe you don't need that level of intensity, but it's a testable hypothesis. So, so I think the, we will have answers to this if people do randomized trials that compare to reasonable control arms that can help us understand whether this is actually making a difference. So I'm going to ask Raphael to comment on these. Raphael, he's saying like two or three things right now, and I don't know if you if you fully agree with that. One is he's saying that immune dysregulation is the differentiator between smoldering, which progresses, and smoldering, which doesn't. Is there any cancer where the malignancy is driven not by the malignant cell, but by the immune system? Is there any cancer that... Besides myeloma, hypothesis. Like, why should myeloma be unique where, where the cells are already malignant, but they're kept in check by the immune system? And, and, and really, is there another example like that sure. uh, besides myeloma where you can make that hypothesis? Okay, this is going to be a little bit of a longer answer, but I'll tell you what. I think blood-based cancers are slightly different from, from solid tumors. And um, I, I think, you know, Sagar and I... I, I I was certain he was going to invoke the work of Madov, which is obviously a brilliant scientist, but I still will call it hypothesis. And I, I would put a, put a couple of, of, of comments forward be, before I explain the other cancers. So number one, they're not really identical. I mean, we know there's acquisition of additional mutations. And my comments are tempered by the fact that we don't understand that completely, but there's additional mutations. We see increased number of mutations of genes associated with progression, acquisition of additional chrom you know, chromosome one abnormalities. But I think the most compelling data right now is for MIC abnormalities as a progression. Now, I don't think that's the holy grail. So now I think we have a lot more to, to explain, but I, I don't think they're quite identical. Now, the second one is immune-driven. I, I would say it's, it's possible, but I think blood cancers are a little bit uh, different. And I have had this longstanding debate also with one of our colleagues who trained with us, Irene Gobrail. Uh, I, I believe the progression is still more intrinsic to the cell for the most part. And, you know, one, one reason why uh, empirical data that I think would support this, when you look at patients who have biclonal gammopathies, and when they progress to myeloma, it's only one of the clones that progresses. So you don't see, we've studied this in some detail many years ago, it goes into that drawer of papers you never published. You don't see a rise of both of them and then one predominance. Usually it's one that takes over, which in my mind uh, indicated that uh, it's likely an intrinsic process to one of those cells. Now, these were clones that we studied with some detail too as well, uh, looking at the genetics within the cell. That's not to say that the immunology doesn't matter, but what I meant by the hemolignancies, I think when you look at solid tumors, solid tumors have a number of mechanisms through which they escape um, surveillance by immunity. And, and we know now that beautifully through the work for, for PD-1, uh, we did some work some time ago looking at tissue factor expressed by malignancies. And uh, one of the things we found is solid tumors express tissue factor, but not see malignancies. And, and I asked myself the question, why? And our hypothesis was solid tumors need to evade immunity. So having some fibrin around you is probably good. It's just like, you know, the whole thing with PD-1, right? It protects you. But hemolignancies are right there in the thick of the immune system. They're in the lymph nodes. They're in the bone marrow. So I don't think that the mechanisms have to be necessarily uh, the same. Now, if you look historically, well, myeloma in some circumstances can be increased with immunosuppression or immunosuppressed states. It's not really predominant. It's more, more other malignancies that come to the forefront. So I'm not saying there's no contribution, but I don't think that's a driver contribution. However, if you can test something like, like LEN or whatever other you know, 
immunostimulant, the TLR receptor, something, that would be fantastic. Now, the question is whether you're going to do more harm or good is also a hypothesis because we know we can cure early plasma cell malignancy. First of all, I'll take a step back. I think we cure a fraction of myelomas already. But if you look at the pre-malignant versions, if you look at things like patients with poems or patients with amyloid, we know sometimes with one transplant, they're treated and that never comes back. So arguably, equally effective therapy, such as could be direct KRD, would be potentially curative in this scenario as well too. So I, I don't, I understand where Sagar is coming from and why he's getting fired from both sides. Uh, but I think as we all started, a lot of this has to be tested through trials, probably not with overall survival. Right. And, and you know, one of the things that you have keep in mind is the trial, the ECOG trial started in 2006 and, and read out in 2020. That's almost like 14 years later. And I, Sagar, how many deaths do you have total? There's like six people who have died? Six, yes. So, so, you know, another 14 years might go by and you might have another handful of deaths because of all the advances we have made. So isn't he reasonable in saying like, you know, I'm reducing real end organ damage by like, you know, bone disease, renal failure by 90%. Why is that not enough? Well, that was enough for Zomeda. Well, you know, for me, it, here's the thing. For me, the progression from smoldering to active myeloma, it's worrisome for two things. One is bone disease and the secondary is renal, right? Renal, we can monitor quite well with, with free light chains. I would say our biggest gap in diagnostic and predictive markers is just having enough data on bone markers because that can surprise anyone. So you can have someone who next has a compression fracture, next has a fracture. But by the statement you just made, you said with a study we started in 2006, there's only six deaths. Uh, you might say, well, maybe it's better to look at other, other markers, right? Because it seems like we're never gonna have the answer that is definitive. I would argue that that's data that says, yeah, people are not dying from this. So let's just continue to monitor the way we were doing. And, and relative risk reduction becomes problematic when the events are rare. Now. Again, I'm not, 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 not saying we have the answer. I just think that we need to have a, you know, careful monitoring. And once you know there's evolution, then pull the trigger and start treating. So, so let's just, before we go to the next segment, I, I'll just ask for, for viewers and listeners, if you have a patient with the high-risk smoldering myeloma, whatever criteria you use to define that, Sagar, what is your current approach right now, uh, on trial and then off trial? Um, so we have two trials. Uh, I think the first is the ECOG trial, which is uh, Dara Lendex versus Lendex, which is trying to build on the uh, combination of the Spanish and the ECOG trial as a control arm uh, with the addition of Dara sort of addressing the is more better than less concept uh, in smoldering. And that, that trial is a, uh, requires that you're diagnosed, I think, within one or two years with high-risk smoldering myeloma using the 2220 criteria. So that, that's probably our first choice. Our second choice is a trial that we have that's a little bit more liberal in terms of the entry criteria uh, using the newest image called ibertamide. And ibertamide is a little bit better tolerated uh, than lenalidomide, and it has actually more potent pro-immune effects. And we're doing that uh, with lots of uh, immunologic correlatives uh, across to really understand some of the questions that Rafael and I have been talking through in terms of immune regulation. Uh, and then the third, if, if a patient is not eligible for either of those, if they fit the 2220 criteria and are not comfortable with continued sort of watching, and you know we see two phenotypes of patients, right? The patient who says, you know there's something there and you're not doing anything about it, this makes no sense. Or the other patient who says, you know there's something there, but you can wait, I'm happy waiting. 
in the first phenotype, uh, we would offer them single agent lenalidomide for two years as we did in the ECOG trial. And Raphael, what is your position on those two things, on trial and off trial? Yeah, no, we, we of course, support and participate in ECOG trials. I have to say for, for um, off trial, I almost make no distinction. So I'm almost always thinking, is this patient really progressing? Are we on the verge of progression? Now, I discuss the data with patients. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, big, of course, on self-determination. And I think patients with high-risk smoldering should be informed. But as part of that information as well, too, I bring some of the some of the nuances we have discussed. And also, and and I think we still need to get better models at 2220. You, you know, when you dichotomize variables like that, and you and we have all talked about this, it becomes potentially risky because one of them could change uh, with with you know minor changes that I think in a community setting you can imagine that triggers uh, treatment. So I prefer to, if in doubt, observe for a little bit longer. And then once we start treatment, I usually do that as full-blown uh, myeloma for most patients. Yeah, Shadi, I think we should have named this trial instead of deter SMM, I should have named it self-determination or something, which is what <laughs> Raphael said. Basically, the trial that is currently running in ECOG is, is comparing Sagar to Raphael. It is Len oh boy. Dex versus the myeloma therapy with Daryl Len Dex. The survival of the fittest. But I have to say, I'll interject just briefly, Vincent, and then it goes back to you. I mean, this was very helpful just listening. Um, the one thing um, that I wonder with with um, with Sagar's trial that was mentioned in terms of toxicities and adverse events, how was that balanced with Len? Because, you know, I mean, Len is not is not benign. I mean, there are certain side effects, obviously. I've used it in my in, in lymphoma. And then I know, Vincent, you're, you're passionate about... Um, uh, drug cost and 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 prices, and I've listened to your talk actually from from a year ago. Um, I think you were giving grand rounds um, at Mayo, and I always actually recommend it to my colleagues on um, uh, you know the cost of therapy. How do you balance uh, just the adverse events and the cost of therapy when making the decision in in smoldering, and then uh, and then to the next topic, Vincent? Sagar, do you want to take this on? Like the question yeah. he's asking, the toxicities and the cost. Uh, how yeah, do you so, justify that? Yeah, I mean, I think if you can prevent renal failure or you can prevent fractures, um, you know, then that that has paid for the for the two years of therapy. I mean, the toxicities were not zero, so I'm never going to sugarcoat the toxicities of single agent lenalidomide. The median duration of therapy was two years. If you look at the Spanish trial, they actually recommend two years of therapy. And given that our median duration was two years, we recommend two as well if somebody's going to be treated off study. I just want to make one quick point, though, and that is, um, you know, Raphael, in the absence of data, is suggesting that if somebody is, is in the high-risk group, he would treat them like they have myeloma. Well, we know that experiment. The Spanish did a phase two study of about 100 patients where they treated them with uh, KRD, transplant, was it tandem or single transplant? I can't remember now, followed by KRD maintenance, uh, consolidation and then lenalidomide maintenance. And at the end of three years, their PFS is identical to the PFS with single agent lenalidomide. So uh, I think the idea that more is better when it, prevention and interception is the goal is not a concept that has been proven by data. Let me, let me just clarify that. No, what, what I mean is if I go to treat, usually it's because I have followed closely and I feel that the patient is an imminent risk of, 
progression going on to active myeloma. What I meant by the self-determination, if someone is high risk and they insist on treatment, I would go with, with single agent lenalidomide, although I have not done that a lot yet. But it's more in that patient that is in the brink of progression to myeloma. And we all know that it's a lot easier to teach crap than it is to practice crap. Because yeah. in the clinic, you know, we, we actually follow this very closely and have to make some subjective assessments as to whether the patient is ready or not. Now, chatting to your point on value, I think, uh, you know, if, what Sagar said is spot on. We just published a paper this year that's called, you know, the cost of progression is, is, is much more costlier to progress than, than it is to stay on treatment and pay for the drugs. So you pay more for drugs, but you pay a lot more for other things if you progress. And, and, and I always think that's the wrong question. And here's why. We're like within just, uh, you know, uh, a short time before lenalidomide is generic. So if Sagar is right, and we go 20 years from now, we say everyone can get this very cheap drug called lenalidomide. It turns out that 20 years before, people had solved the problem by doing this trial, right. which would be of tremendous value to patients. Right. And, and, you know, just for the listeners, two things to keep in mind, uh, Dr. Uh, Fonseca mentioned that, you know, you cannot dichotomize 20% high, low, or, or two grams more or less. And um, so if you are actually interested, the IMWG paper that was published uh, this year in Blood Cancer Journal gives you a scoring system, which which has more granularity, you know, 20% has a different risk than 40%, and two grams is different than three grams or four grams. So you could get a pretty good indication of how likely is this patient to progress in two years, not just a yes, no, but, um, you know, are they 50%, 60%, 70% risk of progression? And the cost aspect also is, you know, our recommendations are not only for America. I mean, lenalidomide is very, very cheap in many, many countries. And in whatever the realities of the costs are there should also be considered. So the, uh, the guidelines are for the whole world. And there are places which would say, oh, lenalidomide is nothing. I, I think we can easily afford that. And then final point, and I think I just do want Raphael and uh, Sagar just a, you know, 30 seconds on this, is like it also depends on who we are talking about as the patient. The younger the patient, are you really more comfortable waiting on a 40-year-old with 30% plasma cells? Or African-Americans who are younger have a threefold or even fourfold higher risk of getting myeloma than whites. And, and when they do get myeloma, it could be you know a devastating fracture or renal failure. So how do those host variables, not the disease variables, the host variables affect your decision? Well, let me let me take a first stab at this. I, I think there's no doubt that you know one has to be particularly careful when you face someone who has so many years ahead in particular thinking about. Uh, the, the potential uh, devastating effects of uh, just simply compression fractures in the spine. So yeah. I am extra careful in how I would monitor a patient like that. More importantly, how I start with a screening imaging test just to make sure, you know, we have the right information. If I had my magic wand, again, and I had a good biomarker, I would say having a biomarker that tells you whether there's imminent bone destruction or not would complete at least my diagnostic toolkit for now. Sagar, would the host variables matter for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a tough one because you could argue if you're able to prevent an 80-year-old from needing full-blown myeloma therapy, you may actually be doing more good than preventing a 40-year-old, right? <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, so I think that that's, that's a slippery slope. I mean, the question that I get most commonly in an email is, I have a 40-year-old with 17P, should I do an ALA, right? 
Um, and, you know, again, it's sort of going to the extreme because they're young. Um, and uh, my answer to that universally is no. Uh, but, but, I think, but I think weighing the risks of, of myeloma-defining events in a 40-year-old is different than an 80-year-old. And, and it, it really is a balance between mindset of the patient, their goals of therapy, as Raphael, I think, nicely described, uh, as well as what we think the relative risks are. And, and I use that more than I would age to make a decision. Okay. I have to say, though, I mean, Sagar, one of the things you mentioned earlier, which really struck me, I want to make sure we, I, I hope listeners heard that, what you said, overall survival is a reflection of access. Mm-hmm. This is this is really an important nuance, right? I mean, I think really, I do think it sometimes gets lost in translation. I, um, I've never said that, but the, when I think about how, how you mentioned that, it, it's big because obviously access in real world is different than clinical trials and everything. And I think focusing on that piece undermines the importance of access, which is completely heterogeneous globally as well as in the U.S. I, I wanted to just emphasize that statement you said earlier. Chatty, just that would change a little bit of my perception of something when Vincent said we're talking about recommendations that are global. Um, I would think that my threshold for treating smoldering would be much greater in, 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 in an emerging economy with lenalidomide. Let's, so if you project again, two years from now, worldwide, everyone's going to have generic lenalidomide. So if, if you know, as, as we present cases or hear cases from colleagues in other countries where they still are limited, they're not going to be using that VR. Then I would say 91% is very important. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think to me, nowhere is the impact of access on OS more apparent than in all of these phase three trials of three versus two, which are enrolled predominantly in Europe when the drug is not approved and the control arm doesn't get access to the new agent. That's where you see that difference in OS. If you have access to the new drug, like we do often in the US ahead of time, that OS difference, I think, goes away. It doesn't mean that three isn't better than two. It just means that OS is the wrong endpoint. Yes. Now, let me ask you the second topic here, which is a controversy. And I think Raphael alluded to this about imaging. You know, what imaging should we be doing? Um, Skeletal survey, whole body CT scans, PET CTs, MRI of the whole spine, MRI of the whole body. And then Raphael, like if I do all these imaging, wouldn't I find something in almost everyone? Like I can make a smolderer into myeloma if I just did five, all, all of these. Oh, yes, of course. You know, you, you're going to find not only that you make a smoldering myeloma, but you make a smoldering a pancreatic nodule or, you know, adrenal carcinoma and what have you, right? So here's, here's how I think about this. The most of the world of oncology lives with imaging and they use resist criteria. And whenever I, I you know, cover for those patients in a hospital service or something, I, I ask myself, how do they do it? It's just horrible. If you don't have a good biomarker, it's much harder. It's just the biology, right? So we have been very fortunate in myeloma that we have the, the, the whole array of biomarkers by which we measure progress and make diagnosis. I think the way I think about it, I tell fellows, you know, biomarkers give you the average for the body, whereas imaging gives you the scanning for focal points. And that's the critical distinction because, you know, uh, an M-spike tells you about the whole person, a PET scan or an MRI tells you about the sites that may be affected. I personally like to think of it in the following way. 
I don't think there's, unless you have no other choice, there's no room anymore for skeletal surveys. Uh, a cold, hard x-ray table where a patient with pain is moving around and has to take you know, X number of images with lower sensitivity is just not acceptable anymore. It's kind of like doing you know, colon cancer screening with barium enemas. It just doesn't make sense anymore. So here's how I normally approach imaging. If someone is already on, treat, on, on the treatment path, so if I already decided someone needs treatment, I usually will do a, a low-dose whole body CT scan just to make sure there's not a skeletal area that is at risk for imminent fracture that may require orthopedic consultation. If, on the other hand, I'm dealing with someone who's smoldering, I usually will do a PET scan. And, and, and the reason for that is just looking for areas that may be indicative of that tip of the iceberg, that focal point that might make a difference and create a myeloma-defining event. So that's how I normally approach it. Now, the key aspect for, for, for doing this really is for bone disease. And, uh, you know, I think there still is a lot of controversy as far as how best to do this. You know, the, the PET CT, the CT component has high resolution for, uh, for bone disease. Um, but there's certain advantages for MRI, and MRI can give you certain indicators as well, too, in case there was anything epidural that could be potentially problematic for a patient. We have explored on a research basis to PET MRI and other markers for PET as well, too. Uh, but I'll, I'll just close by saying in summary, you need to get very precise imaging, especially as you start on treatment, and then with some frequency to make sure uh, the patients you know, remain uh, well. And sometimes um, I, I will do this uh, simply because of the symptoms that patient present. I have a person just last week who is responding beautifully, but was complaining of new recurrent pains. And of course, the PET scan shows multiple new lesions. So the biomarkers are not perfect and one has to listen to the patient. So Sagar, would you agree default being whole body CT survey? And then if you have concerns about smoldering or focal areas, just advance to PET CT and MRI? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, from a practical perspective, so in principle, yes, I think what, what Raphael outlined is consistent, actually, with the IMWG guidelines, uh, which were published recently as well. The challenge is that whole body low-dose CT scan is not an easily orderable test at most places. And uh, as you can see on Twitter, there are lots of folks saying, well, even if you can order it, it's not reimbursed and it's really confusing. And so our default certainly has been the PET CT uh, for everybody, just because I think it's an, it is a relatively easy test to get. Uh, but, but I think all the things that Raphael outlined, I think are consistent with the guidelines and I think make good sense. So Chaddy, you're seeing here that the roles are reversed. Now Sagar is becoming more aggressive. <laughs> with the imaging. So Raphael is the Lendex and Sagar is the myeloma therapy here. So he's saying low-dose CT and PET CT, but both of them, if you notice, are not saying skeletal survey. I mean, and you make a good point, Raphael. It's not just the cost, it's just the cold hard table for like one hour, two hours trying to get pictures. Absolutely. I, so I think just even from the patient perspective, if the quality was the same, that's just not acceptable anymore. And I, I want to emphasize something else that to me is critically important. For bone disease, the most important part is the vertebral body. You know, and easier said by the doctor, but if you end up, unfortunately, with a lesion in a femur that requires surgery or, you know, hopefully never, but if a patient were to have a fracture, we can fix that and someone can, re, you know, return uh, in many occasions, in most occasions, to full functionality. If you have multiple compression fractures of your spine, that is the, one of the biggest problems. So I, I would almost say it's a, probably a different level of myeloma-defining event to have compression fractures. And, and attention, A, to the imaging, B, is to the need to start treatment, which goes back to our first conversation. 
but also three, the proper management of, you know, myeloma bone disease becomes critical. Now, um, you know, again, we, we, we should, hopefully we'll have better markers. I'll tell you, we worked with C11 acetate. We did a clinical trial instead of, you know, FDG. And the idea was that, you know, the skull is very hard to assess just because the brain consumes so much FDG that and the halo effect of that could easily, you know, hide some of those lesions. So we, and, uh, you know, most of the time that's uh, the, the lesions in the skull are innocuous, but it still would be better to have better definition of skeletal images with, with some of those new markers. I, I Zager, would, you know, one of the challenges ahead. that um, I think Raphael brought up um, earlier in terms of the challenges that the our solid tumor colleagues have with resist criteria. And I saw this when we were reviewing the MRIs for E3A06. So anybody who didn't have a normal MRI, I had to review and sort of look at the reports. There's huge heterogeneity in the way that MRIs, particularly looking for myeloma, are read, or the phrases that are used to describe what's being seen. Um, and you know, to the to a certain extent, the the lymphoma uh, uh, community came together very nicely and created Doville criteria. I think we're closer to that on the PET side uh, for, for myeloma than we were a year or so ago, but the MRI descriptions of focal versus marrow versus bone, it's a mess. Um, and, and that makes it very hard, again, to standardize treatment recommendations because you get an email from a, from a doc saying, this patient has myeloma in the vertebral body, but it's not in the vertebral body. It's a it's an area in the marrow, not the bone, uh, and it just get it just gets very messy to, to put it all together. Right, and, I mean, just for your your future host, I think that's the reason why people have a harder time putting PFS and benefit of drugs in solid tumors, just because they they you know they resist criteria. They're so and, and that's the, that's how the world is, right? But that becomes so problematic. Whereas I think in my low mind, there's exceptions. Uh, in general, PFS has been an excellent marker for, for the vast majority of the clinical trials. And when it has not been, subsequent analysis explains why. But I think that's totally different for the solid tumors, and it's just a reflection of imaging. Right. And Sagar, one question for you that comes up often is that, let's say you say you'll do a PET CT as your thing. And if you're thinking a patient has smoldering myeloma and there's no other you know, myeloma-defining events, and you're say 30%, 40% plasma cells. If the PET CT is negative, would you then go in and get an MRI also or, or not? I mean, what is the value of looking for focal lesions on MRI and isn't that one of the myeloma defining events? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, I think what, what we put in there was either MRI or PET scan, right? Um, so is it possible you could have a, one of those uh, variants in patients where they don't make a lot of uh, glucose uh, as part of their metabolism uh, of the myeloma cells? I think that that almost becomes a little bit of a clinical situation. If you're that worried about it, then yes, I think getting an MRI makes sense. But for routine patients where I'm just trying to say, do I feel comfortable watching or not watching? Uh, the PET-CT is sufficient. I don't get an MRI on everybody. And we're testing that in the mm Deter trial, right? Where they're getting both. Yes. Getting both studies. Yes. And what about like, you know, PET-CT picks up the lytic lesions um, and MRI picks up the bone marrow changes. Uh, do, does PET-CT also pick up areas like what the MRI might usually pick up? 
you know, the, it's it they're they're variable in many ways. They are complementary, and I think uh, Raphael's description of the PET MRI. Uh, in many ways, almost becomes a really cool test, um, and we've not we've not done that on many patients yet. But but I think it would almost be the best of both worlds if you're able to do that, and it'll probably be a few years away. And you know, it gets complicated. I mean, the radiologists tell me, and I've learned from them, the cortical aspect of bone is not as well evaluated by MRI, although MRI tells you very well about adjacent soft tissue as well as heterogeneity of the marrow. Uh, anyone who's listened to the talk of Jens Hillengas, you know, you become increasingly convinced that the marrow patterns are going to tell you uh, further about the risk of progression. I, I think that probably should be more prominent in the, in the future models of progression from smoldering as well, too. Uh, but I have gone more with CT and, and the whole body rather than with MRI, with exception of uh, individual circumstances. Uh, as I mentioned, I mean, the most obvious one, um, neurologic, uh, um, you know, symptoms of some sort. We did, I will say, uh, to speak to the marrow pattern question, we did build that in as a secondary analysis in E3A06. And at least on the surface, there, wasn't, there weren't enough events to really be able to, to make that a differentiator, just as genetics didn't fall out as a differentiator as well. Uh, again, likely because of lack of sufficient uh, events to really have any power. So moving on to the third topic, and Chadi, you you know we've discussed smoldering myeloma, which is a nice controversial area, and you've you've got the feedback and and also about imaging. Another area which people just cannot seem to agree on, from like you know what it is to what test you should do or when you should do it, is clinical research. Should we change therapy? I mean, is MRD minimal residual disease? And MRD is a concept that has become reality in myeloma because of the advances in therapy. We're able to get very, very deep responses. So I'd like both um, Raphael and Sagar to comment on, like, you know, what do you think about MRD? Do you use it in practice? If you do, what test do you order, uh, flow versus sequencing? And, uh, you know, do you change therapy based on the MRD result? And uh, we can take it one step at a time, but Raphael, what are your thoughts on MRD? And um, take okay. it away. I'm glad you asked me first because then now Sarah has to play in the comeback. But I'm going to tell you, <laughs> there's a few things that drive me crazy about MRD. And before I do that, I should remind the audience as well. I have had a, a, a working relationship with Adaptive, so I'm part of their scientific advisory board, which you know has been has been a compensated activity. But nevertheless, I, I think that the following comments are completely objective. Number one, you know, it drives me crazy that people say, "Well, we need to standardize." Okay. Number two, it's research. Number three is that we can't change uh, therapy. And number four, that it's not ready to, for prime time. And I'll tell you why. First of all, we have an FDA-approved assay. So that's clinical. We, we, we know that, it, that, it, that it's clinical. Because we have an FDA-approved assay for, for doing this, then, then we know there's standardization. Now, there's multiple methods by which you can measure MRV. Right now, I'm, measuring, uh, I'm mentioning the NGS. But of course, you can do it by flow cytometry, which also has a backing uh, from you know all regulatory agencies, so it's standardized and and you know and it's something that can be used in the clinic again. So it's no longer uh, a research test. Now the question is how how do you use it? So I use it routinely in my clinic, and I use it in two settings. I use it first of all at the day one hundred visit. The reason I do that is is twofold. First of all, is to talk to patients about prognosis. You know, when physicians tell me what am I going to do with that information, my first first response is you're going to talk to the patient. Um, I can tell you, if I have a patient that I get an MRD zero post-transplant, I make sure they know that on the weekend, if I get the email with the results on the weekend. Because if I was a patient, 
that's a result I want to see. And patients are very, very sophisticated. So that's the first reason I do it at day 100. The second reason I do it, this is controversial, but this is how I do things. To me, the writing is in the wall. You have to drive patients to MRD by whichever means possible, particularly those that have high-risk disease. So if you're going to commit someone to go through a stem cell transplant and they're still MRD positive afterwards, I discuss with them and have on multiple occasions initiated treatment with, with uh, intensive anti-plasma cell consolidation. A little bit of modification, if you may, of total therapy, but I might give them a daratumumab combination or somewhat more of the same treatment. We saw that at the recent ASH meeting. There's, there's many trials indirectly tell you more effective therapy results in better outcomes. So I tried to drive to MRD negative post-transplant. So I do that in clinical practice and that's how it changes my treatment. The second version is to, to use it in patients with sustained CR who may be on maintenance and for whom one is potentially considering, you know, this continuation of therapy. I always say, you know, we, we, we can bring MRD into the table for the conversation. Uh, the, the other thing that, that also, you know, drives me crazy is to be people say, hey, well, we need phase three trials. We never needed phase threes for the M-spike. We never needed phase threes for the free light chains. It's just a diagnostic test. And we're not treating it as a fully 100%, this is what you're going to do if you're MIV positive or negative. It just simply informs your conversation more. So if you have a patient who's in a longstanding CR, and maybe the patient is having the burden of maintenance treatment and they're MRD negative, and if it's sustained, which is a word that Sager will use, I know that, I would agree that the patient may come off therapy. We discontinue therapy for diarrhea, and we're saying we're not going to discontinue that because of an MRD negative status. Come on. So if a person is also MRD positive, but they're doing well with treatment, perhaps in our conversation, they may decide with our counsel, counsel to continue on therapy for a little bit longer. Now, I know there's a lot of clinical questions of what, what does it mean, but I think we're at the point that we have an FDA-approved test that is standardized and that we can bring into clinical decision-making. So, Sagar, you could make it life very easy by just saying, I agree <laughs> <laughs> with all that he said, or, or you can take him on. What are you oh, no. Sagar, you never want to give Raphael that satisfaction. No way. Well, if, if Raphael were even close to the truth, I would agree. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that uh, what often gets confused, because the discussion we're having about MRD now is no different than the discussion we had about CR 10 years ago. It's exactly the same discussion. Patients that get to MRD negativity prognostically will do better. There's no question about that. Just like patients who got to CR prognostically did better. And Raphael's initial concept of uh, if a high risk patient gets to MRD negativity, then they're gonna have a better outcome. I absolutely agree. They're probably not the true highest, highest risk, high risk patient, but they fall into the category that we currently describe as high risk. So the subtlety or the nuance uh, really is around, you want to give the therapy with the highest likelihood of achieving MRD negativity. I completely agree with that because that is likely the best therapy. Now where that logical argument completely breaks down is the presumption that if they don't get to MRD negativity with the therapy, with the highest likelihood of getting them there, that by changing therapy, you can change their outcome. That is a complete black box. I hope that that's correct. I hope that taking a patient who after 
uh, RVD DARA or KRD DARA and a single transplant and DARA consolidation is not MRD negative, that if you change them to a BCMA antibody drug conjugate or, or bispecific, whatever you want to pick, you will change their natural history. We don't know that. And you do need trials to answer that question. Now, in the maintenance setting, if a patient does, in fact, have sustained MRD negativity for two years, one year apart, uh, and they're having trouble staying on lenalidomide maintenance, then I, I agree with, with Raphael that perhaps that's a patient that it's not worth the fight to keep them on and make their quality of life miserable, then I think that's a reasonable, a reasonable discussion to have. But remember, the benchmark for PFS, for a standard risk patient now on continuous lenalidomide maintenance is 76 months. That's the median PFS in our RVD 1000, 1000 patients who got RVD induction transplant and continuous LEN maintenance. And in that standard risk group, the median duration of LEN maintenance was about 75 months. So it was pretty close to the median PFS. If you at three years think that because they're MRD negative, you can stop, you better be right because you're risking three years of PFS if you're wrong. And I just wanna know that with long follow-up, we can feel comfortable with that decision in the absence of side effects. That's really my point. So can I ask a, uh, if you both agree at least on this, uh, that MRD is a FDA approved test that is um, clinically useful, not research, clinically useful, at least for prognosis. Do you both agree yeah. on that? Yeah. So you would use it just for the prognostic determination at least. Yes. And sure. then, in, uh, and then the the difference between you two is how how much you would use that information to change therapy. Uh, you being a little bit more conservative about that, and and Raphael is saying, depending on the patient, you would adjust uh, the therapy using the MRD result. Raphael. Correct. No, and to Sagar's first argument, it's true that we need to have more information in that regard. Uh, but like everything else we're doing in myeloma, we're trying to put our best opinion based on the information we have. Now, why do we do four cycles and then we do transplant? Sort of there's a presumption that's the best way to treat myeloma. That's just a legacy. That's just historical. I presume it was when they first developed bad. People couldn't take more than four months of high-dose examethasone because they couldn't go up a flight of stairs or get off a car with a steroid myopathy. So then they, they go into the transplant and then, you know, we cross our fingers and hope for the best. It, well, it's a, it's a black box. <clears throat> the sounds we hear inside the black box are really telling us that you have to get to that MRD negative status. Now, the French have shown this, that MRD changes the dynamics of the biology of the disease. And if you're MRD negative, high risk, you have a better prognosis than if you're MRD positive and standard risk. Number two, they have shown, of course, that if you actually look at when you achieve MRD, it doesn't matter whether that's before maintenance or after maintenance. And we know that maintenance can up to 20% of patients become MRD negative. More recently, and using the word sustain, which is one of Sagar's favorites when we talk about MRD, they have shown that sustain MRD, I think it was Sagar, not Sagar, uh, Nisar, Nisar Bayless presented this or published this just recently, that if you have six months of sustained MRD negativity, you change the outcome of patients. And the reality, uh, you know, someone might be wondering, well, this is just biology. It's partly biology, but it's mostly treatment because we don't get levels of MRD like we see now with that. And, you know, I always say, if you look at the outcomes in studies like, you know, the Pollux or even Alcyon, those studies, when you look at MRD 
Of course, if you get MRD negative with one treatment or the other, the outcomes are about the same. It just turns out that you're three to four times more likely to become MRD negative if you get the better treatment. So in that way, I think it's actionable. It's something we can do. Can, now, can I tell you that I have all the you know, data that's going to tell me that additional treatment uh, would, would make that different? No. Uh, but I, but I, on the other hand, I can tell you there's there's a number of patients that have been treated as well too that have become negative post stem cell transplant with a slight modification on the treatment regimen they were receiving before. And if MRD was important, then we have that MRD negativity at that point. All right. I think uh, we've discussed three topics in in great detail. But I think since I have two esteemed colleagues, can I do like a rapid fire take on uh, certain other issues that come up? Uh, so Sagar, you can start. At this most recent ASH meeting, the IFM showed that at eight years, overall survival was similar with early or delayed transplant. So can you tell me, as a, if I was a patient, why should I do this early transplant now? PFS. The PFS of people, even those who achieved Raphael's vaunted MRD negativity, was better in the patients that had a transplant than in the patients that didn't. And that first remission is likely to be your longest because the disease is the most sensitive at the initial presentation. And so you wanna maximize that first PFS. And as I said before, to me, the point of overall survival is to make sure you're not doing harm with your new therapy, not that it has to be significantly superior in order to demonstrate benefit. Raphael, do you agree with that? You know, I, I agree. I think return on investment for the, the patients, the toxicity, the stay in the hospital, et cetera, it's greater when you do it up front. But I heard you say something, Vincent, in one of the meetings that I agree, but it's also, quote unquote, not the end of the world if you delay transplant for right. whatever reason. So I like that statement because if a person tells me for family reasons, I'm caregiver for someone else, my professional life doesn't allow it, I think it's perfectly reasonable to delay. Okay. Another topic that comes up often is, is the issue of maintenance therapy. Uh, do you both give uh, lenalidomide maintenance and, uh, and do you give more than lenalidomide to some people? Uh, Sagar again first. So Len, for standard risk, uh, for high risk, we've now switched to KR, uh, KRD, because our new induction for high risk is KRD. So, uh, but a PI plus lenalidomide for right. the high risk? Yes. Raphael? Yeah, I do the same thing, except I do exasomib, LEN, so that patients are emancipated from our care, right? So they can <laughs> be away from, from us. And then with the caveat that I do additional treatment if they're MRD positive. And again, for the listeners, there is a trial that hopefully will open soon by ECOG called the Optimum Trial, where uh, patients with MRD positive after being on LEN maintenance for a while are randomized to LEN versus LEN plus exasomib. Another question that now, I mean, I, I have to ask you guys is COVID. Since COVID is here and uh, we are trying to, you know, limit harm to patients, and you know that data show that cancer patients, particularly blood cancer patients, have a higher chance of getting severe COVID and also higher mortality risk. What are you recommending for vaccinations? Um, because I think it will get opened up soon. Um, Raphael, you can go first. Uh, when when do you think they should get their vaccine? As soon as possible, or wait a while, or you know, I think given the the uncertainties, I say go for the vaccine as soon as you have it available. Particularly, we're talking predominantly Moderna and Pfizer vaccinations, which are mRNA based. There is no risk to patients. We're not dealing with a live or attenuated virus of any sort. 
And if that means that they have to get a booster shot down the line, so be it. I think the upside is much greater than the downside. So I'm telling my patients, I see some guidelines which I disagree with, like NCCN, wait three months after transplant. I would say, no way. As soon as you have access to it, go for it. Are you going to get the good response? I don't know, but we can always check for that later. What about you, Sagar? Yeah, I, I agree. I think we want to use it whenever we can get it. I think um, uh, I think the IMS guidelines are going to say two months after transplant as well, Raphael, um, which um, I just think from, from, from an efficacy perspective, you may get a false sense of security if you get it too soon. So I, I don't have an issue with that two-month wait after transplant, but everybody else, I, I agree, just go ahead and get it. What's interesting, and, and, and um, this, uh, so uh, uh, Madhav and our colleagues actually just got a COVID and cancer grant through the NCI, and what they're going to do is look at titers over time in myeloma patients to see whether it falls off, and in, in which case the booster, as Raphael suggested, might be important. If you look at influenza, for instance, and this is published data now, uh, the average protection for influenza for a myeloma patient is roughly eight to 10 weeks. And so we have a randomized trial of three influenza vaccines versus one, trying to understand whether three will better cover uh, for the season. And I think the same thing is going to be the case with the COVID vaccine. One may get immunity, but it may only last a few months. And so sequential boosters over time may be the right answer. But that COVID cancer grant is supposed to help us answer that question. So, so that's, that's really good to end on a note where you both are agreeing that you know, patients should get the vaccine as soon as they are offered. And then for transplant patients, it's a, it, it looks like it's still not clear. Some guidelines say wait two months, but Raphael, you say if they're able to get it soon and they've recovered well, you just go for it. Yeah, I just think the upside is greater. And I think Sagar's point is important because you know, uh, we, we need to understand how this works in myeloma patients. Also, uh, one needs to remember that the absence of detectable antibodies doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be any form of immunity or immunity against a more severe infection. So that's why I go like, let's just try it. And right now, um, the, the implications of getting an infection in someone who has active therapy are, are, are you know, pretty, pretty concerning. And of course, it's a challenge because the cells that produce antibodies are the cells that will be affected by myeloma treatments as well, too. So, so I, I know those limitations, but I think it's better to try it than not. Okay, so for our listeners, I think we've had a wonderful uh, conversation. And, and although there were some disagreements, there are a lot of uh, points of agreement that you know patients with high-risk smoldering myeloma can be classified using risk factors, and that certain patients who are high-risk should be offered therapy. And the disagreement is whether it should be mild therapy or, or more myeloma-like therapy. Imaging-wise, you know, skeletal surveys out. You want to do a minimum of a whole-body CT if not PET CT. And then we talked about the value of MRD and that it's it's clear that it's a research, uh, it's a clinical test uh, that's useful for prognosis today. And the disagreement is, is whether we'd use it to change therapy or not. And even there, depending on the patients, both um, speakers said that they, they would consider in some patients. And then finally, COVID vaccines, we, we're going to vaccinate. Uh, it, it, try and get your COVID vaccines if you're a myeloma patient uh, when you're offered the vaccine, um, because the upside is more than any downsides. So, Chaddy, I, I, think, I think you could hire me as a host because I kept them in check and... I, I, don't, I, I don't know if I can afford you, but... Um. Uh, Teddy, I think you, the, the answer is you get what you pay for, right? Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, he's worth every dime. I, I, the check is in the mail, Vincent. You know how much I pay for this podcast. It's, uh, 
No, guys, really, this is this is really amazing. I mean, I, I I've learned so much, and I think uh, I hope you had fun with it because I just love the idea. I mean, I always step back, and I, and I I you know in my mind, there's a lot of art in medicine. I mean, that's a reality, right? I mean, there's a lot of art in medicine, and I always tell my listeners is there are so many things that we do that are not based on randomized controlled trials, just because we can't answer every question on a randomized controlled trial. We just really can't. I mean, you just think about everything that we do day in and day out when you take care of patients, and you can have a host of things that you've done that day that you can't cite in RCT, but you can cite your experience, your evidence, your you know, you've spent 20, 30 years in myeloma. And lastly, I think having these conversations without putting fingers are always, uh, is always really important because we, you know, I think without having these debates and these discussions, we can't really advance the field forward. Um, but uh, so I'm very grateful. I'm very thankful. And uh, I think I'm going to have Vincent as my co-host uh, for many future episodes, Vincent. <laughs> I'm going to, you know, that's it. That's it. I'm going to tell you something. So Sagar came here, here wanting to get another win under his belt. Uh, the other win is because we had a longstanding debate many years ago, whether CyberD versus BRD. Of course, you know, that has passed and he won that one, but he's walking out of here with a neutral. So anyway, sorry, Sagar, <laughs> no more trippers. So, so you, you were, you were anti-VRD, Rafael? Is that what you're saying? No, I was, I, I had a very soft spot in my heart uh, for CyberD. So in fact, my, my car plates in Arizona were CyberD. Now, if you must know, my current car plates are MRD neg. So yes, I did. When I, I, I saw you a few months ago and I have actually a picture of your car with MRD neg and I posted that on Twitter. <laughs> all right well guys thank you so much i know it's sunday i don't want to take time of your schedule but let's face it it's not like you can have like a busy social day all day i mean i mean probably this is going to be the highlight of your sunday i mean let's face it <laughs> uh, get a live chatty <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys thank you so hey, much before you go before you go let me take a picture everybody smile and then yes, i'll send I'm it gonna, to i'm gonna take my glasses okay, i all, i took a picture because okay, we got I'm, I took a picture. We're gonna we're gonna post this on uh, on Twitter when we air the episode. Go ahead. Sure, I'll send you mine too. Everybody smile. All right, there you go. Okay. Well, have a beautiful yeah. Sunday. Thank you for being with us. Have a good one. Bye bye. Take care, everyone. Later. Take care, guys. Bye. Okay, everyone, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this format. I hope you enjoyed taking a break from me and taking a break from my voice and taking a break from me hosting the show, right? We're going to have more guest hosts on the Healthcare Unfiltered. We're going to mix and match. You need a break from me every so often. I can't imagine why, but, but that's okay. You do need it. So I hope you enjoyed uh, Dr. Raj Kumar debating um, and uh, getting Drs. Fonseca and Loyal Lonial discussing a lot of topics that are very relevant to care, to patient care, and to how multiple myeloma should be approached and uh, uh, discussed. Let me know if you liked this episode or if you have any suggestions or comments. You can always reach me. Uh, through direct message on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, that's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. You can also send me an email to shadinabhan00 at outlook.com or even visit my website at www.shadinabhan.com. 
and you could send me a note there and browse the website, check it out, see various podcasts and, and episodes and let me know any additional comments or ideas. You can find this podcast on all podcast outlets and as usual, subscribe, rate, review and refer. Before I let you go, I want to really leave you with a, a saying by L.R. Nost. I found this really, really interesting. And I really want you to have that front and center, no matter how bad of a day you're having. Life is amazing. And then it's awful. And then it's amazing again. And in between the amazing and awful, it's ordinary and mundane and routine. Breathe in the amazing. Hold on through the awful and relax and exhale during the ordinary. That's just living, heartbreaking, soul-healing, amazing, awful, ordinary life. And it's breathtakingly beautiful. Until next time, take care.